The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Lisa, do, can I take this off? Is that okay? <laughs> oh, oh. I am greatly honored by this. Um, you know, it, it is, uh, for those that don't know, if you're new here to the King's Chapel, I, I finished my seminary studies last week, and um, I got just an outpouring of congratulations and all kinds of kindness from you all. One of my favorite comments uh, was from one of my friends on, on Facebook who said, wow, Mark, you're a real associate pastor now. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark. As you know, this is one of my favorite Gospels, not for the reasons you might assume, but uh, this is just a great Gospel because I, what I love about it is the pace of this book, the content of this book. It's, it's just this picture of the kingdom coming into darkness, light bursting forward into darkness, and it moves forward at this really rapid pace toward the cross. And so you can turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 35. It's about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we love giving away Bibles. We have them at the Connection Center. Um, We would love to give you one this morning. And in the Scriptures, in the Gospel of Mark, what we are seeing here is in this earliest written-down Gospel, we're seeing John Mark, this young scribe carried along by the Holy Spirit, who has recorded the personal stories and testimony of the Apostle Peter. So if you know anything about Peter, you know Peter is a simple guy. He's a, he's a fisherman. He doesn't have a desire to waste words on elaborate theology, but he has amazing stories to tell. And so what we see in the Gospel of Mark is three years of messages and miracles, like, like diary entries, packed into as little parchment as possible. So think of this as like the greatest hits of, of what Peter saw in the life and ministry of Jesus. Each passage is going to be packed with action. I like to think of this as almost like the youth pastor's gospel, because in it you'll see the embarrassing stories of Peter, what youth pastor doesn't share those, and then you'll see this first-person picture of Jesus and what he is like. And I love this. I want you to think, as John Mark is scribing these words down from Peter, and Peter's sitting across a table from him, perhaps, relaying these ideas. Think of this. Peter can recall what Jesus' eyes looked like as he was looking on Sinners, the broken, those in need of healing. He can recall the tone of his voice and what it sounded like and how familiar it was to him as he recounts word for word the most impactful things that he remembers Jesus saying. He tells us his memories of his time walking side by side with the Messiah. And that's what we get to read here. It's so cool. And so it may not feel like this week after week as we go through these passages, but this, this gospel unfolds really quickly towards both the darkest and the lightest days in the history of mankind, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But as we get there and as we move toward that eventual destination, don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity that we have over the coming weeks like Peter and the disciples to simply be with Jesus, to follow Jesus. And to observe Jesus. And what we see in Jesus as we go through this is his heart toward the lost, the broken, the sinner. And we get to see in that his love for us. I'm so unworthy, yet still you love me. And and we see then his desire that through us, through you, we might bring love, his love, to a desperate world. There is nothing better 
than spending time with Jesus. So let's do that today. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and let's start our day with Jesus, a day with Jesus. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, some of you have never done that, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Let's just stop right there. Let that blow your mind for a moment. Think about this. Jesus, Jesus Christ, who had perfect communion, perfect intimacy with his Father, can think of no higher priority in his day than to get up before the Son, get away to a private place, and pray to his Father. This is something we see repetitively in Jesus' life. In the Gospel of Luke, it's like he's always going to the middle of the lake, the top of a mountain, out into the wilderness, some place, some place alone, a desolate place to be with his father. And so we see that Jesus had this daily consistent habit of prayer. As often as he could, he would go away to a special place to be alone with God. Now, I don't know your specific lives necessarily. I know what my life has been like, and I guess a lot of you have similar types of paces and intensity in your lives at times. I think when we have conversations with people and we ask them how they've been lately, about nine out of 10 people in this church would describe themselves as busy, right? Busy. I've rarely met a person in Northern Virginia that doesn't at least claim to be busy. And and we are. We are busy. We have work, traffic, sports, kids, events, parties, school, uh, work to do at home, grass to take care of. We have church. We have small group. We have prayer meetings. We have worship practice. And a list of good things goes on and on and on. We're busy. And if we're not busy, don't you feel like you should be? Like you're like, I need to be doing something. We, even when we have downtime, we can't help but check the notifications on our phones over and over again because we feel like surely there must be something that I'm supposed to be doing right now. But I'm convinced that if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus, and by that I mean not just follows at a distance, but actually lives life like Jesus, then our lives will look different. I think that you'll find as we follow Jesus around that he is not at all concerned with impressing people with his busyness. I think you'll find that he has ample opportunity to be interrupted and actually welcomes the interruptions in his day. He makes space for people that were not on his schedule. I think we can learn something from that. What if we as a church were different? What if we were like Jesus in this regard? What if we as a community, as families, as individuals, saw prayer as our priority, as the antidote to our pace, And stopped choosing hurry over our spiritual health. I'm guessing a lot of you are tired. Anyone tired here this morning? I can see it on some of your faces. You are. Hang in there with me. But think about Jesus. He was tired too. After all, he had just been up all evening. We went over this last week. All evening, people were coming to his door, the diseased and the demonized. And he had this endless stream. Think about how tired he must have been that morning getting up before dawn after casting out, I don't know, 30 demons from people the night before. Do you think that made him tired? I think he must have been incredibly exhausted. And yet Jesus, though fully divine and in this fully human body, physically weak like us, look what he does in response to his exhaustion and the mountain of obligation awaiting him. He pushes it aside. He steps into the darkness of the not yet morning and he spends time with his father. Prayer does not give us a less busy life, but prayer does give us a less busy heart. And and so to be effective disciples of Jesus, we can't always just be pouring out. We need to be taking in. We need to have this kind of intimate relationship with the Father. If prayer was necessary for Jesus, how much more do you think we need it? 
This isn't the main point of today's message, but I just wanted you to hold this in your mind because we'll see the life of Jesus and we'll see this come up again. So just hold this in your mind over the coming weeks, but this is not the main point. We'll come back to this. Jesus is alone, back to his day. He's, he's praying. He's being ministered to by his father. He's recharging, so to speak. But like that experience when a three-year-old starts pounding on your bathroom door in the only quiet moments you have, you know what I'm talking about, Peter comes knocking. And Peter comes along, Simon Peter, he thinks that Jesus has been gone quite long enough, and he comes to him, and verse 36, Simon, that is Peter, and those who were with him searched for him. You get this kind of idea, Jesus is, is hiding. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. No doubt to Simon Peter, this is exciting, like this is what they came to do. Jesus, is, it's, it's happening now. He's bringing the kingdom. The Messiah has arrived, and crowds are forming. They've seen the miracles he's been doing, and they, they're coming, and everyone is looking for him. And, and Peter's excited about this. They don't even have to leave home. They can stay around the Sea of Galilee, and, and the crowds will come to them. And Jesus can just do what he, he does, and his celebrity will grow. And, and what could be better than that? Ready or not, everyone is looking for you. The locals are, are coming back for more. And yet, listen to this response from Jesus. It's as if he says, everyone's looking for me. We got to go. Let's get out of here. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. He didn't come to be a local celebrity. He didn't come to, to be just an endless source of, of vending machine miracles for this town. He has a message to bring. He has a mission that he is on, a message to proclaim. And it says in verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, now Jesus goes on this preaching tour over the coming weeks, and we cannot understate the impact of what is happening in these rural towns of Galilee. Jesus is bringing light into utter darkness. He is bringing hope to the hopeless. He is changing lives and eternities. And what we see in all these descriptions is he's coming up against demonic dark forces regularly. Like it or not, which you probably don't, I hope you don't, there are malevolent spiritual forces at work around us that oppose the work of God. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who has his own servants, a spiritual enemy who Scripture describes as a liar, an accuser, an adversary. But fear not, Christian, because Jesus Christ has authority over them all. Jesus is king. And where Jesus is, his kingdom comes and the kingdom of darkness begins to crumble. We'll see this again as we come to chapter 5 later on. Next we see the diseased cleanse. Jesus and his disciples set out through the countryside. And on one occasion, as they're walking, what happens is, is this in verse 40. A leper came to him imploring him. Imploring, that's, that's a powerful word. When was the last time someone implored you, begging him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, if you've been in church over the years, maybe you know what leprosy is. This is familiar to you, but I want us to just bring this back to our minds and, and look at it afresh and understand just how profoundly helpless this individual is with this disease of leprosy, isolated, alone, diseased, covered in this, this illness. And so what does this mean that he's a leper? Leprosy, it's kind of this catch-all term in scripture for these diseases of the skin, psoriasis, ringworm, all kinds of, of things. But those kinds of conditions are not what we're looking at right here. They are not the cause of such desperation and such great concern that we see in this passage. No, in many cases in Jesus' day, what lepers would carry with them is this disease 
nodular or, or tuber- tubercular leprosy, which was this, which is largely eradicated in, in our uh, life, thankfully, but in some pockets of the world, it still exists and it still affects people quite a bit. And so what happens is these ulcered lesions come over a person's body. So over time, someone might notice a little bit of discoloration on their skin, and then it, it begins to spread. It begins to discolor whole parts of their body. There, there, there is swelling. There is a breaking up of the skin, and this corrupting disease begins to cover all portions of the body until it covers their, their nose, their, their cheeks, their eyebrows, their forehead, so much so that the, res- the person, uh, the leper, would no longer resemble who they had once been. They would be unrecognizable. Concurrently, this disease would then affect the internal organs. There'd be great pain in the joints. There'd be a, just a full body lethargy that would, would cover these, these lepers. And in many cases, lepers would have this profound nerve damage that would take away any ability for them to feel in their extremities, in their hands, in their fingers, in their toes. And so over the course of, of years and decades, they would suffer injuries that they couldn't even feel. So that same sense that you have to recoil from a hot stove, a leper wouldn't have that. So over time, lepers were known to have lost fingers and toes and and all kinds of horrific issues. Eventually, this disease spreads, and it is painfully slow and plodding, and it would spread to the internal organs. The voice of the leper would become hoarse. Their eyes would begin to lose sight. And after years of suffering, the leper would succumb to mental decay coma, and death. And and this type of anesthetic nodular leprosy, this was very common, and it's very contagious, and so it would be frightening to those that had it and very costly to those that had it. The disease would slowly ravage their bodies for years on end, mercilessly progressing. And even worse, even worse than what was happening happening physically is what would happen spiritually, relationally to the leper. They would be completely ostracized from family and friends. Some of you have seen the devastating impacts of being isolated over the last couple of years, just being, being set aside. This is social distancing to the max. Lepers would be unwelcome in any human company. Nobody would touch them. Nobody would spend time with them, not family, not friends. They would be banned from fellowship, shunned and excluded from society, and forced to live alone or in colonies of lepers like them. In the Middle Ages, just, just an anecdote about this, the, uh, if someone was a leper, they would go to the priest, and the priest would pronounce funeral rites over them years before their death because they were as good as dead. Leprosy was a death sentence. This leper would have been away from all human touch, away from all affection, away from all dignity, and if he came in the presence of others, would have had to ring a bell or shout out, unclean, unclean, as he approached others to warn of the incoming infection. And so religious people, Pharisees, were known to carry rocks in their pockets just in case a begging leper came too close so they could quickly deal with them. We can't even identify with this. This is such a a painful, miserable existence. E.W.G. Masterman in his New Testament dictionary says that no other disease reduces a human being for so many years to so hideous a wreck. And this is no mere infection. This becomes a person's identity. I am a leper. 
And so picture the scene. Jesus and his friends, they're walking along, and suddenly this leper comes out of nowhere and starts coming toward them. Picture the fear, the panic, the anxiety. As Peter, in all likelihood, is reaching for his sword, this leper is approaching, and they're shouted, shouting, stay back, stay back, as this monster runs at Jesus and gets close enough to breathe on him, and then at the last second falls to his knees in desperation in front of Jesus. And the leper, having heard about what Jesus can do, says, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus looks at him, and he doesn't flinch. He doesn't turn away. Jesus doesn't recoil. He leans forward, and it says in verse 41, moved with pity, This is the word compassion. This is the same emotion that the father of the prodigal son feels when he sees his son coming toward him on that road. And he feels compassion toward him and he goes out and he runs to meet him. This is the heart of Jesus toward this leper. Move with compassion. He's not repulsed by this man's condition. He's drawn to him actually in his brokenness. In love and mercy. And it says he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And Jesus said, I will be clean. He touches him. Maybe the first time this person has been been touched in years and Jesus reaches toward all his filth, disease, and brokenness and touches him and he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I don't know what it was like in that moment. There's no dramatic music playing or anything like that. But for those that saw that, what do you think that caused them to feel? They were probably shaking, buzzing with with energy and, and emotion to see this person go from death to life, to see this person be restored, to look like an actual human being again, to see the touch of Jesus and his love and his compassion and, and his power to change everything. Think of what this, this leper must have been experiencing. His destiny, his eternity, and his presence have all been changed with a touch and a word because Jesus is willing. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is so good. At his touch, the diseased are healed and cleansed. The demons are cast out. The outcast is brought in. Was it for a sign? Was Jesus doing this to impress people, to to show that, that he was something special to those that are watching? In this case, no, not at all. He heals because he loves. Compassion. Jesus is love. Jesus is mercy. Jesus is power. And the good news of the gospel is that we too, whether we know it or not, are covered in the disease of our own sin, our own filth, with no ability to make ourselves right with God. Did you know you cannot clean yourself up? I can remember times when my children have made a mess of themselves. They've gotten sick and they want to clean themselves up. And what happens is they, they just make themselves worse. And that's how we are. We have no ability to clean ourselves up. It is worse than we even know. Because sin isn't just what we've done. It's not just that stack of misdeeds, those things you've done wrong. No, it's who we are by nature and choice. It's who we've become. And yet he looks on you and he looks on me and he is willing to reach out and touch to cleanse you, to make you clean. 
Maybe you've never experienced the cleansing touch of Jesus. Maybe you've, you've never allowed him to even look on your brokenness and, and, and you've wanted to rest in your own ability to clean yourself up. And today, maybe for the first time, you know you can't. You can't. Despite your best, best efforts, you can't make yourself worthy of his love. I want you to look at me. He's not afraid of you. He's not unwilling to touch you. You are not so broken that you are beyond his reach. He loves you. And he would make you clean. He invites you to himself. And the question facing you this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, is simply this, do you want Jesus? Do you want his cleansing touch? He is not far off. He is available to you. Do you want him in your life right now? All you have to do is believe in him. Profess belief in him. Believe in his death and resurrection as your only hope and ask him to come into your life. And like this leper, today can be the best day of your life. It can change your eternity. He can cleanse you and he will because he loves you. Verse 43, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. This is interesting. Jesus has just basically circumvented the whole cleanliness laws by reaching out and touching a leper. And then he goes and he says, I want you to follow what we read about in Leviticus, in Leviticus, Leviticus 14. And I want you to go to the priest, don't tell anyone, and just show yourself to the priest and show that you've been healed. And so he, he, he encourages him to go and follow the law. What Jesus does when he comes along is to the Jewish person, he doesn't nullify their law. No, he shows them that the law of love supersedes these other laws. And in this case, he encourages him actually to go and follow the law of Moses. And so what the leper will do is he'll go to the priest, he'll wash and shave and get rid of his old clothes, and he'll make an offering of two birds, one to be sacrificed and one to be set free. That's a picture, isn't it? And I won't drag you through the, the details of this ritual. You can read it on your own. But, but just to summarize, during this, this sacrifice, one animal pays the penalty, one is set free, and then after a week, after another washing and shaving, a sacrifice will be made of a spotless lamb, which is a sacrifice, of course, pointing forward to Jesus Christ taking our sin upon himself on the cross, being the perfect spotless lamb so that we might be set free. And then the priest in this cleansing ceremony will take some blood from the lamb and then some oil and he'll do something that might strike us as unusual. He'll touch some of that blood on the right earlobe of the cleansed, on the right thumb, and then on their right toe, first with blood and then with oil. Why? Ear, thumb, toe. God has healed you. Christian, God has healed you. Listen to him. God has cleansed you. Serve him. God has made you whole. Walk with him. Jesus sends him to the priest, and he tells him not to tell others. But verse 45, he went out, and what did he do? He did what we would do. He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. This is interesting. This guy disobeys Jesus and he starts telling everyone, and we can't blame him. And we think to ourselves, isn't that what we're supposed to do? But actually in his exuberance, he is causing a hindrance to the ministry of Jesus. He's doing something he was not instructed to do. For most of us, this is not the lesson for us this morning. We need to speak up about Jesus. 
We need to speak up about this glorious hope that we have. But for some, there's an encouragement here. Listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Don't just do everything that that comes across your mind. Don't just say everything that seems true to you right away. This guy is going out and he's he's blowing up his Twitter feed and his Facebook and he's saying, everyone come see Jesus. He can heal you too. And maybe this wasn't the right message at the right time because Jesus had not instructed him to do so. So these crowds come to Jesus, some for the right reasons, some for the wrong reasons because they just want to see a spectacle or they want, they're skeptical. They want to, to scrutinize him. And all these people are coming to Jesus so much so that his ability to go town to town as he had wanted to is hindered now. And so he can't even get into a town. They're so crowded. Next, we see the desperate forgiven. And we're going to have to come to a rapid close. I'm going to have to kick some of this next, to next week, I'm sure. But when he entered Capernaum and returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. You've heard this story before. This is familiar. You see where this is going. But don't tune out. You've maybe seen this in Sunday school on a felt board somewhere. It says, They came, bringing to him a paralytic, someone who's unable to walk, carried by four men. So picture it. Jesus has just come into town. The house that he's preaching in has become so packed with people that it's overflowing. People are pressed against the windows. People are, are, are gathered at the door. There is no more room. And then four friends arrive, too late, to bring their desperate friend close to Jesus. These are amazing friends. These are people that are willing to do anything to bring their dear friend to Jesus. And they've heard Jesus is in town, so they are going to to do everything they can to bring their paralyzed brother to this healer. As we consider this, I want to ask you, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do to bring others to the feet of Jesus. This is love in action. Some some of you parents, maybe you should take a cue and pick up the four corners of your teenager's mattress and just carry them to church, right? They love this guy. And they're going to do everything they can to get him to the feet of Jesus. So they pick up his cot and they bring him to Jesus. And we see this desperate love of these four friends and they're willing to bring him to Jesus. And this should cause us to reflect. And I invite you to reflect this morning. Who in your life brought you to the feet of Jesus? And can we just rejoice in gratitude that someone was willing to share with us the love of Jesus and that others were willing to to carry us along and encourage us in our walk with Jesus? But I also would ask you, who has God brought right to your mind now that you could bring to the feet of Jesus? Who has God brought to your mind this morning? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter that you are desperate to bring to Jesus. And can I tell you, one of the best ways we do that is through, yes, through our witnessing, but even more so, one of the most effective ways that you can bring people to the feet of Jesus is through your prayers, through your prayers. Years ago, I read this book uh, by Pastor Jim Cimbala called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And some of you have read that. And I, it always stuck with me, this story that he tells in it of his daughter. His daughter who has grown up in the church but has run away from Jesus. She's rejected all of it. She's, she's off and she's in a prodigal phase of life, rejecting her loving father. And so in this church, what they would do is every Tuesday night, they would gather for a night of prayer. And they gather together to pray, and they're praying uh, just like in Acts chapter 4, praying for boldness, boldness to be his witnesses, boldly, boldly reaching out to the Lord together. And I'll tell you what he says about it. He says, as they were praying, this is Pastor Symbol, he says, an usher handed me a note. 
And a young woman who I felt to be spiritually sensitive had written, Pastor Simbola, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. In a few minutes, I picked up the microphone and I told the congregation what was going on with my daughter. And there arose in that room a groaning, a sense of desperate determination, as if to say, Satan, you will not have this girl. Take your hands off her. She's coming back. I was overwhelmed. The force of that vast throng calling on God almost literally knocked me over. But when I got home that night, my wife Carol was waiting up for me. And we sat at the kitchen table and I said, it's over with Chrissy. You would have had to be there in the prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, if there's a God in heaven, this whole nightmare is finally over. And in peace, they they gave their daughter over to the Lord. 32 hours later on Thursday morning, he says, my daughter walked in to the house and we both just began to cry. Daddy, she said with a start, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, so she continued. In the middle of the night, God woke me up and showed me I was heading toward this abyss. There was no bottom to it, and it scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I'd been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight, and he kept me from sliding any farther as he assured me, I still love you. And I'm not walking away. That same Tuesday night, the very hour that the church was praying, God moved in her soul and showed her that she was headed toward destruction, all the while flooding her heart with a sense of his love. One of the best ways that we bring people to the feet of Jesus is through our prayers. Don't stop praying. Don't stop seeking the Lord for those people in your life that you are desperate to know him. Pray with faith. And when they could not get him near because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. Now, this would have been a flat roof with steps up to it. They wouldn't have been tearing up um, shingles or plywood. They would have just been digging into the clay and the straw. And so just picture it, and we'll come to a close here very rapidly. Picture the scene with me. Jesus is preaching and teaching, and all of a sudden, dust begins to fall from the ceiling. And suddenly, in that dark, hot room, light breaks in. Everyone looks up. Some are murmuring, some are cursing, especially maybe those religious folks who got there early to have the best seats. People are pressing back against the walls, and I just picture them pressing back and Jesus just standing still and looking up as the ceiling begins to break above him. And as he sees a dusty, desperate, sweaty face peering through at first, and then several others. And I can just picture a smile coming across the face of Jesus as he sees the desperate love of four friends who are eager to bring their beloved to his feet. And when they had made an opening, a big opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Jesus looks at the man, and and he looks back up at the exhausted faces of these four friends and, and their expectant hope. And the crowd grows silent, and Jesus speaks. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. It's not what this guy needed, right? He needed healing. He needed his legs restored. No, no, no. Could it be 
that his deeper, truer need was just this, to be forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, these good people, and they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. He's pretending to be God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's just the point. This is God alone standing in their midst, and he declares to this man, your sins are forgiven. And immediately, Jesus said, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, Take up your bed and walk. I don't know about you, but I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Though we have no authority to grant that. And then Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, this term from Daniel, his favorite nickname for himself, he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I'm going to invite the band to come up, conclude our time together in worship, and we'll come back to this next week. But I wonder this morning if any of you walked into church in desperate need of a healing touch or thinking you needed something from God Maybe you needed a pick-me-up. You needed to, to feel better. Life has been hard. You wanted some encouragement. And maybe you didn't even know it, but what you really need to hear this morning is, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Did you hear me? Your sins are forgiven. This week I was at the church and I was just praying and, and, and this, this man came into the church and, and he had a lot of needs, physical needs, financial needs, uh, all kinds of needs. And as I was sitting there talking to him, I just had this, th- these words burning up in me, in, in my spirit. And I looked at him and I said, I, sir, I believe the Lord would say to you, your sins are forgiven. And in response to that, his head just goes down like this. And he says, I believe in what Jesus has done for me. How can I know? And I said, let me say this again. This is, this is not a, a suggestion. This is not Mark. This is not my opinion. This is what the word of God declares to you today, and he declares the same to you. And I'll tell you what I said to him. I said, son, your sins are forgiven. The authority to forgive sins rests in Jesus Christ alone, not in our ability to make ourselves good enough for him. And and, and can I tell you, his countenance changed. And he stood up and he walked out different, and he's going to have a lot of hard things to deal with in life. But how can we deal with these hard things in life Apart from knowing the goodness of this truth, we look forward to a resurrection hope in Christ because of the cross and the empty grave with a a reassurance every day of our lives that what we have done, that what we are doing, and what we will do has been paid for in full. Son, daughter, you are forgiven. Thank Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you that you would come to us in our brokenness and our filth and you would love us, Lord. We are lovable to you. Lord, let us bask in the glory of that good news. Let us bask in this forgiveness that has been so hard fought for and bought with your blood and let us live on mission to tell others the good news of what we've received and what they can receive too. In Jesus' name, amen.